0: We are live, and let some people hop back on here, guys. Thanks for putting up with that. Sorry about that. Um, that's usually if it mutes, you can just click the unmute button. George, are you there? Can you hear us? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. All right, there. we got you yep, loud and we got clear you. now. We got you loud and clear. Awesome, well, guys. Sorry about that. Um, I'm not going to do a long intro again, but thank you for tuning into Eastern Current. Um, little short. I'm going to shorten it down for you. Okay. Camera fish today. I fish today. Check out Patreon. <laughs> um, thanks for tuning in to Eastern Current. Got a great guest. It's George Poveromo. What's going on, George?
1: <laughs> well, excited to be here with you guys, and uh, especially now that we can talk.
0: Yeah. yeah, definitely. I'm going to blame that on the coronavirus. I think. I think it's getting in our computers and messing everything, everything else- up. <laughs> Well, cool. Well, guys, thanks again for putting up with that. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Billy, sorry for not picking the phone up. I saw that you called in, but I was I was like, I'm going to figure this one out without Billy. I think I can do it. Billy's my buddy that helps me with all the tech yeah. stuff and helping me start. He's a current, and yeah. it was just uh, – I muted it beforehand, and it didn't want to come unmuted. But, um, well, awesome, George. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, I'm a little flustered. Give me just a second, and I'll settle back <laughs> down. Um, but, yeah, we're just super excited for the show. How have you been? I've uh,
1: been – Good. A little bit of a downtime now. We're, we're sort of in between our normal deal. We finished the uh, Saltwater Sportsman Seminar Series the last Saturday in February, and we get back to shooting our television programming for 2021 in May. So we have that little uh, month or two or three cushion here to, to get refocused for TV, go through your tackle, get the boats all dialed in and what we need to do. And it just timing-wise worked out because you get this crazy – corona deal here that's pretty much keeping everybody under lock and key for about three to four weeks or six weeks so uh from a timing standpoint on, on my end the, the break worked out good i'm not really missing anything on either end but uh we'll see what happens come may
0: yeah definitely yeah, we were talking about that before the show it just it couldn't have worked out any better that's awesome and uh getting those those seminar series wrapped up early i mean that would have been a huge Huge uh, hit if you wouldn't have been able to travel to all those shows and all those people that are looking forward to hearing from y'all talking. And and I'm just so thankful that y'all were able to get it all in. I'm looking here at the comments, and I guess people could hear both of us, but I couldn't hear you. So it would have been very hard to have a conversation. (laughs) We could have guessed what each other was saying, or I could have guessed what you were saying. Uh, and
1: I could put more challenge to the show. Yeah, maybe aspect, so. You know? yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah,
0: just yeah. Uh, just guessing through a whole conversation. <laughs> well, cool. Well, what we usually do is we start with, I'm going to switch back over here. We start with um, kind of just the, the basic question of how did you get into fishing? Like I know you grew up in South Florida, but kind of take us through that journey of, of your first time that you, you fished and kind of how you fell in love with it and, and to where you are today. Sure. And uh, the credit goes to my father. He he
1: was a dentist in Bay Harbor Islands, which is Miami Beach area, and his passion was fishing. So I think it was probably the age of five or six in there that he would take me to the little seawall, Biscayne Bay, with a little tiny rod and reel, little pieces of shrimp. And I would catch these tiny little grunts, tiny little mangrove snapper, which goldfish were bigger than them. But it was (laughs) that excitement of doing that, that just, oh, my God, it was just something that just got in my soul. Right. And from that point on, you know, it it was just fishing. I always had to fish and he had a boat and we would fish Biscayne Bay for tarpon snook. And his favorite uh, spot to fish was the Marqueses, the islands, which are about uh, 28 miles west of Key West. He loved the bottom fish with groupers and snappers. And ever since I could remember as a kid, we'd go down there and we would fish that place, you know, forever. And to this day, I still get down there at least uh, once a year to fish. But it, it goes with him, the credit. Uh, somehow I just latched on into fishing and then my grandfather on Sundays, when I wasn't out with my dad, he would take me canal bank fishing. We'd walk in different canal banks to catch largemouth bass. So growing up, that's all I want to do. I never played sports in school because all I want to do was get home, start walking the local canal banks and try to catch bass and fish. And um, it was just, just weird that I was able to turn this lifelong passion that, that got in your soul into a livelihood. So I know that's sort of a long-winded answer, but it started with my father and um, just spiraled out of control from there.
0: That's awesome. I, that just it's It shows how important it is for, um, you know, a, as adults and as fathers and as, you know, role models in, in young kids' lives to get them out on the water and, and get them, you know, fishing and show them how fun it can be. I feel like we're in a world now where, like, people are so sucked into their phones and their computers and video games. But I mean, I feel like if you take any kid fishing, you know, and it doesn't, they don't have to catch a bunch of fish, but you catch a couple of fish and you you don't, you don't make it a hundred percent about the fishing and just kind of just show them how much fun they can have out there. I think that's so important. Um, and and we don't have much of that today. How do, how do you know? And really- it, 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 it doesn't always really stick because then you, like
1: my daughters, when they were young, you would take them out fishing. They'd enjoy it. And then, but then after a while, they just sort of peeled away from it. Maybe later on in their years, they'll come back to it. But, yeah. And I think the other key, too, is when you're starting off with a youngster fishing, is you don't make it a hard regimented event like, hey, we're going to get out there and stay all day. We've got to catch fish. You know, you let them set the pace. Mm-hmm. You try to take them to some area where they can catch some snappers or blue runners or jacks. Let them pull on it. But once they get tired, yes, you want to go for a boat ride. So you take them for a boat ride. Then you point out the wildlife around the Way and you make it more of an adventure because mm-hmm. the first time I think if you really make it a hardcore deal at a young age they're going to re- equate that to oh I don't want to go out there that's yeah. just long days right. and boring and that so it's all how you how you bring it up and and, and and spoon feed it to them as well I think
2: yeah I feel like that would be something that I would be bad at because I, <laughs> when I go fishing it's you know only for two days a week um, on the weekends and I'm like all right this is my plan this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fish here for this much time and then I got to get out of there before the right. tide drops and blah, blah, blah. And if I took a kid with me, I think he'd be like, uh, this is way too intense. <laughs> oh yeah. Fish, 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 catch, catch, catch. We gotta go, go, go. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, That's a really good point. Um, and I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, when I think about having kids and teaching them how to fish and stuff that, um, I, I, I hope I rem- I'll remember that before uh, before I take them on one of the intense trips, I guess.
0: Yeah, talking to other other dads who who have done it. It's, it's, they're saying the same thing you are, George. Like, you know, go fishing, but as soon as they're over it, go to the sandbar, you know, go for a boat ride, go eat some snacks. Sure. just it Just it, swim. Yeah, definitely. It just add it with other things that, that they already enjoy and kind of build it into this big fun package for them. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. Sure. Well, cool. So when are you going to ask a
2: question? Uh well no I I just I I read something on you George um earlier today actually I think you were telling the story about how you had gone uh, out fishing and I think your dad was gone and you brought home some <laughs> mahi. And he was like, whoa. And you were like, oh, yeah, we were just fishing at the bridge. And he was like, you're not catching mahi at the bridge. <laughs> you were offshore. So,
1: somehow, when you started that, I knew that's where you're going to go. With that story there. And I'll, and I'll tell you how, how that, that transpired. Uh, as we started growing up, or I started growing up, and um, I, I turned 16. I got my driver's license. And at the time, we had a, a, a bay boat. It was like a 16-foot tri that we had and we spend you know, a lot of time bass fishing, but that was the boat that we would just fish Biscayne Bay for tarpon and snook. So naturally when you're 16, you grab your friends and you take the boat out with your friends. And my dad's cardinal rule was you would never, don't ever leave Biscayne Bay because the boat was an offshore boat. It wasn't a self bailing boat. It had a 65 horsepower outboard and and, and that was, we had to stay in the bay. So naturally, you know, We'd adhere to that early on, and then after a while, you know, you're catching these tarpon, you're catching snook, trout, and every time you're running by the inlet, you're looking out there, and that mm-hmm. inlet kept calling me. The ocean started calling me. And so finally, my friend and I, we'd sneak offshore. And one, one time where we got caught, we were bottom fishing, and we crushed these big mangrove snappers. We got a couple red groupers in there. We did really well, so it was during the weekday. we come home and back the boat in the driveway, and I'm cleaning the fish. My dad pulls up and he sees his grouper and snapper. He jumps all over. You weren't supposed to go offshore. And I said, no. Uh, I told him a little why. We've got these in Biscayne Bay because he always used to take me fishing around the Bay Harbor Bridge. And we would catch these little small snappers and little small groupers. And I said, we had a heck of a day. And I, somehow I convinced him that we caught him under that bridge. <laughs> So that night, I hear him telling my uncle on the phone, you wouldn't believe the fish George caught under Bay Harbor Bridge. And I wasn't sure if he was playing reverse psychology, wanting to chime in on it. (laughs) Then I realized he wasn't. So he and my uncle had gone out that Sunday. And they came back, and they had about a 20-pound black drum. They had a couple nice mango snapper, big sheep, said, man, that bridge was on fire. And I'm looking. And they actually caught him under the bridge. So I got out of that one. So two weeks later, my buddy and I go back out again. And we go offshore. And this time we put about 25, 30 school dolphin in a boat. So again, weekday, I'm cleaning the fish. Here he comes. He saw the dolphin and he freaked out. And I tried to tell him that they were caught under Bay Harbor Bridge, but he didn't buy that one. So he grounded <laughs> me. Not only did he take the boat away from me, oh, but no. then I, I got my driving privilege taken away. So my mom had to drive me, up, drop me off at school, and then get picked up in the afternoon. So how uncool is that for a sixteen-year-old? Get dropped <laughs> off at school by your mom and picked up. Oh, so yeah. it was a while before I got behind the wheel of anything again. And he <laughs> finally realized that I'm gonna get killed in that boat because I want to go offshore. So he broke down and bought a twenty-three-foot Mako, and that started my fishing exploits. He figured he. He didn't want to see me sneaking out and getting killed out there one day, which <laughs> probably would have
0: happened. That's <laughs> awesome. So bri- by breaking his rules, long story short, it got you a nicer boat to fish out
1: of. I was born in May. I'm a tourist. I'm stubborn for tourists. And he knew that I'd find other ways to sneak out there. And it was just a matter of time before something bad happened. So he figured he knew I was going to do it. So he figured, let's let's step it up and be safe. And then we could all enjoy that and uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, in a weird way. But I, the Bay Harbor Bridge deal worked once for me, and it failed miserably the second
0: time. <laughs> that's a great story. That's a really good story. Uh, well, so so where in South Florida did you grow up? Was it in Miami? Yeah, North Miami. North Miami. And, awesome. uh,
1: yeah, grew up fishing the Hall over North Biscayne Bay area. That that those are my home waters, and uh, that's where I grew up. Did all the offshore fishing out of Hall over Inlet, and uh, of course once you leave the Inlet, you run south based on where the fish are at, or, or, or truck north. But that's where I, I cut my fishing teeth. And as the years uh, progressed, and of course, I trailered a bunch of fish to make a winner tournaments all throughout the state of Florida. And then, of course, you pick up and start running to the Bahamas because then, you know, you realize Bimmy's only 50 miles away from Hall Inlet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the right equipment, 50 miles isn't that terrible. And so then you start fishing the Bahamas. So it, Miami, in my opinion, if, if you were a saltwater angler, there is no better stretch of water in the world to be than there because you had it all. You had snook, tarpon, trout in, in Biscayne Bay. You had the reefs for grouper, snapper, cobia, king mackerel, Spanish mackerel, sailfish, wahoo, the offshore waters for a dolphin, your billfish, uh, like your whites and blues, uh, swordfish. And then plus, you were at the stepping-off point to the Bahamas. You could mm-hmm. hit the Bahamas and, and say if you want to do an international thing somewhere, you go to Miami National Airport, you can fly to Costa Rica if you so desired, mm-hmm. And don't forget the freshwater. You have the Everglades and all the canals. So from a fishing standpoint, that's why I would never, ever, ever leave South Florida and, uh,
0: because you have it all here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the versatility there is unmatched anywhere else. I mean, just such it, it incredible. Yeah. And I mean, one one thing I did last year for the first time that, that I will have to do a lot more was the peacock bass and the canals down there. You were I mean, sight fishing them, right? Yeah, we were sight fishing them. I and we were fishing live shiners a lot. We threw the fly some too. But honestly, throwing those live shiners down to the peacock and like watching them see it and come over and eat it was super fun. <laughs> uh, but do you do a good bit of that peacock fishing when you get, when you get there? Uh, well, it's funny
1: you brought that up because I grew up fishing um, in the Biscayne River Canal. That was the freshwater uh, lake that we lived about a block over from. And the Biscayne River Canal goes through a dam at Miami Shores and goes into saltwater at uh, Biscayne Bay. So we fished the saltwater side and all for snook. And then growing up, I always bank fished for largemouth. Well, fast forward, I don't know how many years, but like, we got a hold of a bass boat. And about uh, probably five years ago, my cousin and I used to do that. We actually found a little launch ramp. We launched the boat to Biscayne River Canal and we went bass fishing. And we caught 22 largemouth, which I thought was pretty cool. So then I'm hearing these people catch peacock bass there. So a a week, week and a half ago, I went out with my buddy, Carl. We go back down there with shiners in our plastic worms, and we fished. Mm -hmm. We ended up catching nine peacock bass and eight largemouth. And the peacocks were all caught in shiners. The largemouth, we got all but one in plastic worms, and the other one fell for a shiner. But where I was going with this is when I first heard people catching peacock bass in the Biscayne River Canal, I, I was angry, and I heard... About this years and years ago, I, I, I said, man, what did they ruin the canal for by putting peacock bass? That was a good place to catch largemouth, brim, uh, freshwater catfish. And now they changed the dynamics, and I was all angry. I figured they ruined it. And then we catch these peacocks, and those things are like Jack crevels of freshwater. They don't pull anything in freshwater really? backwards. Yeah. And so I found a new appreciation for peacock bass. When I do it, I still want to fish for largemouth because I like largemouth. That's what I grew up on the freshwater side doing but uh, every now and then when it gets born I'll I'll try to catch a peacock and they're they're pretty
0: amazing fighters they really are they really are and they're just they're so pretty they're just such brilliant freshwater fish
2: yeah they are pretty that brings up an interesting topic though that and we don't have to dive too deep into this because I think there's a lot about it but as far as Florida is concerned like peacock bass were introduced I'm not exactly sure how but there's there's a bunch of other species like in the Everglades that have been introduced over over a time period that aren't necessarily natural to that area. Is
1: that right? The dynamics of the freshwater world, you know, as it relates to extreme South Florida, I'm talking, say, maybe Broward County and then for sure Miami, has changed crazy. Now, again, growing up in in those canal systems, you had your largemouth, you had your brim, crappie, Freshwater catfish, you know, you had your occasional chain pickerel, mudfish, and a garfish. And that's all you had. Uh, occasional twerk and snook that would come in a dam and go up the freshwater. So then, what? and I know I'll get this wrong because I'm not a freshwater guy, but I understood that the peacocks were stocked in there to sort of reduce uh, a tilapia, like the tilapia were really breeding uh, uh, out of control. So they introduced the peacocks to keep those stocks down. So the peacocks took the tilapia levels had come down and all the other ones that you're talking about have from people who have these pet fish, these crazy things, they get too big or they move. They start dumping them in these freshwater canals because they can't them <laughs> anymore. And, and these things, you've got some crazy stuff in there that, 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 I've seen, I'd be scared to, you know, afraid to touch it. That clown knife fish. I had one <laughs> almost hooked up the last time I was in the canal it tried to get a plastic worm. I saw it come alongside the boat. I don't know whether to jump overboard
0: and get that item. I think it's an yeah, looking, looking fish.
2: So that's the story I thought I heard that, it, and I didn't want to say it without uh, confirmation, but that people were like buying these fish and having them in a fish tank and then being like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm over this thing, <laughs> just throw it in the canal. And then yeah, somehow it, it, it starts breeding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah for, for a number of reasons the fish might have gone too big and or they had to move or but, but they you know they figured whatever the reason was that they had to get rid of these fish and and they, they couldn't you know kill them because how could you kill your pet so they figured give it a good shot let's dump it in the everglades you know canals and if a largemouth eats it we won't see it so mm. we won't feel that bad right. but a lot of them took and also in that canal the biscayne river is i saw one caught there before a pirate a pirate Pyra, pyra. I'm
0: trying piranha, to it. It Piranha, like a, piranha,
1: yeah, it looks like a giant piranha, but it's a pira. It has these big, uh, giant. yeah, piranha. I know what you're talking about. And one guy caught one in that canal that was 25 pounds. He brought it to local tackle oh shop. Oh my
0: god!
1: And I'm you, you're out there bass fishing. You're expecting a nice, quiet, you're relaxing right? time. You imagine hooking something like that and seeing this. You know, yeah. you don't know whether things poisonous or what it is. <laughs> That's turning into a like quite the challenge now. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. Definitely, yeah. definitely. That's crazy. Yeah, there's and so many cichlids too. There's so many different fish. Oh, but we caught a bunch of those too yeah. in the last trip. And those, those are pretty. Really those are really ones. pretty as well. Yeah, they're they're crazy fish. I, I've uh, I've enjoyed I enjoyed that time fishing on there. And and I haven't thought about it from your perspective of where like you know it came from with the really good bass fishing and the craft mm-hmm. fishing and. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that, but, but it's definitely, it's a cool fishery. It's, it's, it's a neat fishery. And I was like, I've always thought, man, if I was a guy in South Florida, like you'd never have to cancel a day. There's always so no, many you, would you not. can go do. You could
1: fish anywhere, depending on what water, where canal, because some of these canals are so far down, it's like you're fishing in a bowl. The yeah. wind could blow 30 miles an hour, but you're down. And so mm-hmm. if you're a freshwater guy, you know, barring any torrential down, even a torrential downpour, you can fish, you get under a bridge and yeah. you know, yeah. you could, yeah. put your rain yeah. suit on. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's all you know, every single day, you almost you could fish in these uh, local freshwater canals.
0: For sure. Well, let's let's get back into the saltwater scene because yeah. that's what we all love. That's what we're all obsessed with. And um, so, you told us how you how you started fishing and, and and kind of how you fell in love with it. When did it become? When did you decide? You know, this is what I want to pursue for my career. Kind of how did that how did yeah. that play out for you? And <clears throat> this this comes from the
1: chapter in life that sometimes you just get so dumb lucky. <laughs> and that it's not even funny because my, my dad was a dentist and he was insistent that I became a dentist and my younger brother who's 4 years beneath me be, would become a dentist. And he had these plans that we were going to end up going to Emory University in Georgia where he, you know he graduated dental school and me I had zero interest in looking at people's mouths and all that. I get just freaked out as and I wasn't cut out for it. My brother became a dentist. He's good at chemistry. He's good in math. I terrible in math I have to take my shoes off and count on my fingers and toes to get 20 above 25 I, you know I, I'm in trouble <laughs> I, 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 my, my brain does not deal with math does not deal with chemistry but it deals with history and English so definitely wired differently than, the, than my dad right. and his brother so he was insistent that I was going go to go to leave and, and I wasn't going to leave I, I had it too good here with the fishing there's no way and I'm going to go to Atlanta Georgia come on and at a college, <laughs> so he finally realized my grades weren't there and, and uh, you know, when I w- was arguing and so long story, short, he said, we got to become something. And um, he said, you gotta, how about an attorney? And and so that sounded good, because when he told me that, in my mind, I had an attorney, but what I was really thinking of, great, I got to stay here and just keep fishing. So, yeah, yeah, it sounds good to me. You're buying time. Right. Anyway, fast forward, I go to the University of Miami and, of course, trying to take those courses, I was lousy at that. So my dad figured I'm going to be a lost cause here. So he said, you've got to pick some major. So what I did, I picked the easy one. I picked broadcast journalism as a major. I think it is easy. I could fish. And if somebody told me back then that that's what I would do as a career related to broadcast journalism, I would call them the biggest liar in the world because I just took it to buy time so I could fish until <laughs> something opened up. I could do something. So anyway. I was fishing the Mako owner tournaments back then, religiously. We would tow my boat from South Florida and hit the ones in Palm Beach, Key West, Port Canaveral, uh, Florida Panhandle, Destin, take the Walker's Cape Bahamas, and we did very well. I fished it uh, six years, the Mako tournament. We won the Angler of the Year four to six times. And every year, Mako Marine back then hosted an outdoor rider tournament, where they would invite 15 of the top fishing riders from the big magazines an all-expense-paid weekend for mako. And it would take them away for seven days and have them fish mako boats. And it was the greatest PR thing for mako because all the riders wrote a story, and they all took boat-to-boat pictures of these big fish on makos. So it was my senior year of college, and Bill Monroe, who's was the uh, marketing director for mako, had asked me, would you take your boat to Walker's Cave, Bahamas, and help me fish some of these outdoor riders? And I said, absolutely. So I met Frank Sargent in Outdoor Life, at the time, I met the guys from Saltwater Sportsman and Frank Johnson, not Frank John, but Frank Sargent knew that I did a lot of sail fishing at a Palm Beach in the winter. He says, why don't you try your hand writing a story for Outdoor Life? this Frank, I said, I don't even know if I could write. So we'll try it. Put a sailfish story together. If it's bad, we just won't use it. But if it's good, we'll polish it up and run it. So I did. And the first story ever sold went to Outdoor Life and they were among the highest paying magazines. I got wow. a, check for, a check for 300 bucks, I thought I was gonna retire for the rest of my life. <laughs> and and then later, Barry Gibson, the Saltwater Sportsman, asked me to you know, write a cakefish story, and I did. And after I graduated, about a half year later, he wanted to know how, how are things going, and he said, would you be interested in working for Saltwater Sportsman? I said, yeah, so they flew me to Boston, which was the headquarters then, and did an interview, and that was in 1983, And to this day, I'm still a a masthead editor with Saltwater Sportsman Magazine. But it was because of the Mako connection. Now, my dad, uh, when we were going to step up and and get that 23-footer and get out of the bay boat, I wanted a Mako. My dad wanted to get an Aquasport because his Bob Hughes, the dealer, and a friend of ours dealt with Aquasports. And I argued, and he wanted to go with Aquasports, and somehow I convinced him to go Mako after a long, drawn-out debate. Debates, I should say. This went on for a while. And had my dad won and bought the aqua sport, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. It was just the dumb luck of him buying the mako, me doing the mako tournaments, meeting their marketing person who brought me to fish an outdoor rider tournament where I met these fishing riders who then asked me to do some work for them, which later transpired into a position with saltwater sportsmen it's like I said, you couldn't write this thing in, in a crazy yeah, right. script. It was meant it to was be. Just, it was just one of these dumb th- things that just, you know, it's even hard to describe. I'd love to tell you that I was just so brilliant. They just <laughs> jumped on me. It was just a, just a luck kind of a deal that it all came together. And I was just, you know, passionate about it. It's my passion. And so was able to make a, a, a good career because of it. But that's how the weirdness started. And, that's how I got to where I am today.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great that's story. A story. <laughs> yeah. I think that's better than you know uh, the 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 humbleness behind it of saying you know it was just kind of luck and I kept wanting to fish. You know, I think that's how most people build a fishing career is like they really just want to be on the water fishing. Um, exactly. and, and that's and all so, I wanted to do. Yeah,
1: I, I I didn't care if I got a job out whatever it was doing. My whole goal was just to get a job where I can make enough money, where I can go fish for a couple of days each week. And, and that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. And that's what was, you know, it was the passion thing. And um, then it just, it just worked out. I just think in a lot of cases, a, a, a lot of these things are just breaks. Sometimes you just meet the right people. You cross the right person and in just dynamics take over. I, I yeah. you know, like I said, there's really no explanation for how it works. So it's like a fumble, basically. Yeah. But some, that football fumbles and every now and then you get lucky and you come up with the ball.
0: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, let's uh, let's kind of dive into your fishing down there and and what you do. So, if you've got perfect conditions, you know it's going to yeah. be you can go do anything. You can run offshore, you can fish inshore, you can you can do whatever you want to do. What is your go to? What's your favorite?
1: Uh, and this is. Just so you know, I'm, I'm taking a sip of water. It's not moonshine. It's <laughs> it water. looks like – it's in a innovation jar. I don't know but if I can Knock out the coronavirus. i you going to purify yourself from the inside. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so, so the question was,
0: given the perfect conditions, yep. what would be – What would be your go-to? Like what's your favorite thing to do if you could go do anything? Offshore. Like, offshore
1: out Offshore. And if I had to really narrow it down, which would be difficult to do, but if I had to – it would be chasing dolphin. I think that is the most exciting form because you could do it in several different ways. And I think there's nothing really more beautiful than to be out there in a a flat, calm ocean, 30 miles away, not another boat, and you're trolling down alongside a weed line. And it's so calm that you could see any ripple. Then all of a sudden you see a wake pushing in, charging out of those weeds, going to one of your outrigger value. And boom, it gets hit, and you got a 30-pound bull dolphin. it, it, it just yeah, just an intriguing sight. Then you could just run around all the, uh, the ocean looking for them under birds and looking for debris.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've have to say, dolphin. It, it's that that's the one that really moves me the most. And if I could only do one species the rest of my life, you know, let's put me out there with dolphin. That's cool.
2: One thing about dolphin too that's that's really cool is that like one they're sight fishable. Yeah. If you, yes. if you can find the weed lines or something that they're hanging underneath and two something that I've seen videos of, but I've never done personally, but it looks absolutely amazing. Is if like, I don't know if you do when you're trolling and, and you reel one in and you got them next to the boat and then all of a sudden a bunch of them show up or you're bottom fishing and you, you know, you catch one bottom fishing and then you reel it up and there's a bunch of dolphin with it. But I've seen videos of boats just sitting still, either anchored or something and there's just dolphin going crazy all around the bed. And they're it, just it, like it, pitching pitching baits to them one after the other.
1: It happens uh, quite frequently and that's when you hit a school of dolphin. And really when you go looking for dolphin, uh, you know, my my deal, I like to go try to get those bigger dolphin. But the goal of probably most dolphin fishermen and myself in there too is what you go to uncover one fish and you get it hooked up as you're fighting that fish in the school follows and all of a sudden you could have anywhere from 10 to 50 or so dolphin around the boat and you're breaking out the light spin gear and you're hooking these fish left and right and I don't care how skilled or how seasoned of an angler you are when a school dolphin come around the boat and you're sitting you're hooking them and you're flipping in the boat it's a total craziness where all of a sudden you became like eight, nine year old kids again. And (laughs) it it, it just does that to you. And it's, it's amazing to see these greens and blues all around the boat. It's, it's just a, just a remarkable fish.
2: So is your tactic for that when you're reeling one in, you're you're looking for other fish coming in with it. And if, if there is other fish with it, are you pretty much stopping the boat and keeping that one hooked and then pitching light spinning gear to the other ones?
1: It, yes, and things have, it, it, have changed. When we go dolphin fishing, we have our troll baits and trolling outfits. We have our pitch rod baits, which we're running, gunning, we were spinners. Then we have our school fish outfits, which are, you know, 15 or 20-pound test and 12-pound test light spinning outfits ready to take advantage of school dolphin. Now, the cardinal rule that we all grew up on and was that you look one dolphin and you have a school around the boat. You keep one dolphin in the water at all times, so and that will hold the school. Years ago, that held true. And now, because there's so much pressure on these fish, that the one won't necessarily keep the school around. So you hook sometimes two, three, or four fish and keep them in the water, and that will keep the school around. You have to hook and keep more of them in. So what we do is we have a um, like a system. When we're in a school fish, we'll hook one. and When he's hooked up solidly, my buddy will hook up. I'll put that rod that I just hooked a fish on in a holder. I'll grab another spinner, hook another fish, and I'll put that one in another rod holder. And my buddy has already put his in a holder <laughs> and grab another one. And it will have, you know, three to four fish or five hooked at the same time. Then what we'll do is we'll rotate. We'll go to the one that was hooked the earliest. I'll wind that in, flip it in the boat, throw the bait back out, hook another one, and put that in the rod holder, and we just sort of rotate those fish out. It's, it's like a system. Yeah. Uh, and it holds them around the boat a lot longer.
2: That sounds like a, a skill that has to be learned by doing it a lot. <laughs> oh it is. fishing with the same people. people.
1: And it's still putting rods under this, and they still crisscross, and you try to put the separation. And ones you let a little bit farther, a couple you keep a little bit shorter, but uh, it, it's all all part of the game. And those are just some of the tricks to keep the school mm-hmm. around longer. That you know we didn't have to do back when I was a young kid, and you didn't have the fishing pressure like we do today those fish Mm -hmm. get hammered a lot and and they get smart
2: yeah yeah yeah. definitely so how is the um obviously the inshore fishing where you live is really good um but if you had to pick one inshore species to target which would it be
1: (laughs) okay now that now this is where i go in a sharp contrast because you would probably think i'd pick smoke or tarpon it would be sea trout so i go from one extreme the offshore fish to sea trout and uh (laughs) The, the reason behind that is that's what I cut my teeth on as a kid in North Biscayne Bay mm-hmm. catching sea trout. Going out with my dad and later my friends, simple with a little popping cork with a live shrimp. You would throw it out and you'd sit and the popping cork would go down. You would catch a trout. And it was all those years spent trout fishing in the bay. It still holds a little personal uh, piece of my heart yeah. that I, I I love it. I still find it very relaxing because it's a kind of fishing you can make it as relaxing as you want or as hardcore by hardcore mean you could just try to concentrate and get in the bigger trout or you could go out there and just have fun and catch these half pounders or one pounders and catch some mm-hmm. release so inshore fish for me you put me down for sea trout
0: gotcha I, i'd have to agree with you on the trout i mean i've for so long i've been so dead set on on sight fishing and redfish and snook and per I mean we don't have stuck permit up here but spending a lot of time and money down in Florida targeting snook and permit and tarpon and bonefish but I got bit with the with the trout bug lately Mm -hmm. and we have a good trout fisher up here but I've been bit with like the the big trout like I want I want a 30 inch trout so bad it hurts but um (laughs) it's it's just fun man that trout fishing and the finesse fishing and working a bait well and um you know knowing where those fish live and where the bigger ones live it's it's very addicting it's it's super addicting um uh, I was wondering in, in that Biscayne Bay and then South Florida area, what is what's a big trout down there?
1: We're in an area of, of that part of Miami and, and Miami in Miami general, we don't really see big trout. Our trout down there are a half a pound to a pound. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a two pounder, that's a good trout. My biggest that I've taken in Biscayne Bay, and I had it mounted. Was a, a seven-pound trout, wow. which by this Bay oh, no. standards, standard, that's really, really big. Yeah, I've only seen one bigger than that. My cousin caught an eight-pounder out of there. But if you go for the, the big trout, if you're looking for the big, you know, the double digits, or trying to get a double digits, you would look from the area from Stewart, Florida, up through Fort Pierce. Gotcha. <laughs> and those were they get the really big ones. But Miami is more of an estuary, and there's just a lot of small trout in there. And every now and then. You get might get a four pounder, but you know those are big trout from Miami's Biscayne Bay. Yeah,
0: when when you're targeting trout down there in the Biscayne Bay area, like in North Carolina, you know a lot of the areas we're fishing in current, we're fishing on seams and eddies and little edges and creeks. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like it's probably pretty different down there. Are you fishing, you know, out in the open flats and stuff, and, and fishing those potholes for the trout down there?
1: Yeah, we're fishing grass flats and uh, drifting over grass flats or trolling motoring over and. Over and and you know trying to find some of those white holes interspersed with the grass flats and trying to get either your live bait in there or work your lures past that zone and also too a lot you know tide dependent when the tide's starting to get a little lower mm-hmm. or is it starting to, to rise then you look for these uh trout on the edges of the grass flats as they start sliding into some of these deeper channels and you'll start working those channel edges as the water progresses up mm-hmm. in there so uh it's it's mainly sea grass, fishery, and um, potholes, and and work with some grass. Uh, you know where where it starts sloping down to, to ledges.
2: Awesome. I went to um, when I went down to Florida to pick up my boat uh, a few years ago. I I got a guide to take me out just trout and red fishing. Yeah, and it was unlike anything that I've done around here. I mean, it, it was like George was saying. He took us out on these grass flats, and you could you could see the trout. You could site fishing yeah. and they're just like all this grass and then there'd be like a patch of like white sand and there would be like three trout sitting in there. Yeah. That's <laughs> so cool. Where
0: were you, where were you
2: fishing? That was a a place called Pine Island. I, okay. I yeah,
1: sure. West coast of Florida. That's a good area for trout, Pine. Yeah.
0: Island. Yeah, it was it was awesome. That's sweet. that's super cool. Yeah, I wish we had we have areas where the trout will live. And we don't we don't really have the grass flats like you all have down there but um we have similar scenarios that we get to trout fish. And I really mm-hmm. like that. Um, nowadays, if you're, if you're fishing lures for speckled trout down there, yeah. um, artificials, what do you like to throw? I, and when I would do trout and I, when I still do it,
1: I, I'm a top water guy. I love seeing okay. this trout blow up on top water. I use a Rapala skitterwalk walk, yep. uh, top water plug. And I'll, I'll fish that. And, you know, naturally early mornings or a little late in the afternoon, but sometimes I still stick it out when the morning starts progressing into that, Noon time, and mm-hmm. as long as I'm getting bites on it, I, I just it's amazing to see them blow up on, on mm-hmm. those top waters. And sometimes it leads you scratching your head because you'll see a beautiful blow up and they don't get hooked, right? They miss two such trebles. I, you know, it's it, but I, I love top water, you know, quite a bit when I'm in that bay,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. definitely.
2: And you might catch a redfish every now and again if you're throwing top water, yeah, for sure,
0: for sure. yeah, a big snow. For sure.
2: Well, I guess you'll catch a lot of redfish, too, if you're using popping cork and shrimp. <laughs> yeah, they like that as well. They um, really like that.
0: So if you're, not, if, if you're fishing inshore and it's not trout, what are some of the other fish that you like to target down there in the Biscayne Bay Area? Oh, snook. Snook, snook, snook right, except that. number two.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, and that, that's that, the, for sure because we have big snook in our area. Yeah. And because of the rules that they, they passed where you're not allowed to keep any trophy-sized snook, you know, you have to release yeah. all the, the large ones – there's some monsters in that waterway it, they're mind-boggling and um it, it's 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 really amazing the size of stuff that we have in in that Miami area mm-hmm. amazing and you
2: I think, we you and I spoke a long a while ago but um your trout fishery took a pretty big hit at some point didn't it
1: well it did when we back in the days when we had the net the netters mm-hmm. back in the, before the net ban it, it took a devastating hit. It that all the bait fish in the area down there, which, you know, fed a lot of fish. The, the, the bay fishing and that, the old South Florida scene really got, got, got bad. The, not only were the trout being netted and the Spanish being netted, uh, all the bait, it, it was just devastating. And, um, you know, I grew up, in, like I said, in the bay there. And you could go and you put together 30 trout as, as a youngster. Didn't have to really try that hard. And after that ban, if you could put together four or five trout, they, they would give you a little mention in the Miami Herald under fish report. That's how bad no. it was. Wow. Then, then it wasn't that long after they had the net ban that you saw things bounce back. You see just a lot of bait back in the systems. And then after a while, the trout fishing rebounded, and uh, it got very, very good. Now, the the, the the latest issue we've been fighting, this has been going on now for a number of years, is, is the water quality. Um, what has happened... In North Biscayne Bay, uh, it, it's it's mainly intercoastal waterway and the flats are grass flats or, or some, uh, you know, scattered rock mud flats. Well, after years and years of all these homes there and the Miami Shores Golf Course uh, of, of using Riddick's and all to kill all these weeds, after all these, you know, years and years of rainwater, washing that stuff into the bay mm-hmm. our grasses now are absolutely terrible the spots that i used to fish sea trout in north biscayne bay very consistent area lush grasses it's just mud now and mm-hmm. you know the north biscayne bay a lot of those grasses are gone because of that you go farther south in the bay you start picking up some more grasses and then once you get in that wide open south bay you see a lot more grasses because there's less of that population or that runoff and, you know, people are wondering what's happening to the grasses. And they would, you know, early on blame it on the manatees that were eating all the grasses, but that's not possible. And then they finally came to some conclusions. It's all these homes on the water and golf courses using, you know, that RIDX mm-hmm. to stop. The, and, and, you know, when that rains and, and, and everything comes back into that bay and it goes through these drains, that RIDX kills the grasses on the bottom of,
0: of the floor. And, yeah. It's it a problem we have. It's as as humans, we love to like point our fingers at other things in nature that are causing the issues. When really, it's just us. I mean, I, I, my sure. my example is always hurricanes. Like you know, if you took humans out of the picture and a hurricane hit somewhere, and you know, it, it's not really doing any damage. Yeah, it might knock trees down. It might, you know, do some some temporary damage. But but most of the big damage, like when we had our hurricane, we had a huge fish kill in the river, um, the Cape Fear river here, because of all the, uh, the, the, overflow from the hog farms that got in the water yeah, and lowered lower the oxygen levels and, and mm-hmm. killed a bunch of our striper and our big catfish and our largemouth bass. Um, but yeah, and I know that, um, you know, you, you, you speak uh, a lot on conservation and that's just something that, that needs to be shared here more. And we're really trying hard to, to push for that and to get these gillnets out of the water because I mean, year after year, it's just a, a steady decrease of of fish and you know areas that hold fish. And uh, I remember that you spoke at, I think it was a it was it was a CCA media. It was before yeah. your show last time. Was that a CCA? Yeah. You spoke at yeah, yeah okay. in in, Wil- in Wilmington. In Wilmington, correct, correct. Um, yeah, that was uh, that that was powerful and 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 to to come from someone who's seen it. On their own waters, you know, and it's not just this theory of like, oh, right. maybe if we get rid of gnats, it's going to help out.
2: Yeah, you, you've seen the the uh, devastation it can cause, and right. then you've also seen it when it's gone and how it's rebounded, which is and, a, plus, interesting.
1: Plus, I've had, you know, the good fortune of being able to fish everywhere, you know, Texas, Alabama, all the inshore shows we've done, and the inshore articles I've done for Saltwater Sportsman. You've experienced a lot of these inshore waters, and, and like I said at that Wilmington that night um you know North Carolina does not realize the gold mine that they have sitting there untapped oh man if they get rid of those gill nets the expansive waterways that you have are just custom ordered for giant trout and numbers of trout where people if you had them out of your water four years five years from that point people would not be going to Texas to try to get a big trout. They won't be going to Stewart, Florida, or Fort Pierce to try to get that big trout. They'll be coming to your waters there because you're gonna have the, the most incredible population of trout and large trout that just from the, the economic standpoint of people coming down to fish those in the hotel rooms, the guys, the restaurants, the they're blinded, they have no idea of what's sitting there waiting for them. And, right. and they're just, you know, it's, you know, it's crazy.
0: You guys it have it. It's upsetting. I mean, and and you say the trout, and, and I'm with you on that 100%, but even the flounder fishing here.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And the
0: red fishing. With the Pamlico Sound being such a large estuary and a, a, mm-hmm. a brooding ground for young fish, um, you, we would just see incredible, incredible fishing. And, and we have great fishing now. We have, I would say we have good fishing now. Uh, but if this is going to be have to be what we tell our kids one day like you know i wish you could have fished in the good days you know when when i, when I was younger um it's it's going to be sad and so uh, i think as as anglers uh in north carolina and across the board it's it, we we've got to have our voices heard because we sh- if we like fishing you know we we shouldn't just care about our fishing in our state or our mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of the north carolina coast or here i mean it should be overall for all the fish and you know conservation for For fish in general, I think it's it's huge. So, I
1: agree. It it is like
0: I said. You you, you know, you talk
1: about you. You do have good fishing, but you still don't have any idea what it could be. be. I'm with you. And you know, I I I get questions from the commercial guys. So, what are we going to do? This in an app? And you know, the smarter ones, what they would do is they would get a boat and become a guide because a lot of those more knowledgeable ones, they know where these trout are stacking up certain times at a tide, and certain parts of the whole ecosystem there. And they could, a lot of them could be really hellaciously good guides because they just know where these oh, fish are gonna be. Work a fraction of, of what they have to do now. And, you know, just gotta polish up some people skills, but, you know, there's an opportunity for them to get some pretty easy money and just becoming guides and, and, and giving up the so, netting mm-hmm. deal.
0: Oh, mm-hmm. certainly yeah it, it, there's almost like there's this culture of netting here too where it's and, and i'm sure every state sees it that, that where these guys really just you know they, they there's guys that are doing it 100 percent for a living but it's and i could be wrong on this and i, I don't want to speak out of um something i don't know but it seems like there's just kind of like this just like we enjoy fishing there's guys that really enjoy netting you know that that's kind yeah. of their hobby but it just yeah. it doesn't you know when when something's whether it's a heritage or it's sustainable or um sorry whether something's a heritage like there's a lot of things that were heritages that that we realize were wrong Mm -hmm. and that we're not you know healthy for the world we live in and and we Mm -hmm. we we we, you know we get rid of them and that's the way the world's gonna have to go and i think that's where we're at with nets now it's like no matter what if it's a heritage if it's you know people are making a living off of it it's it's depleting a resource terribly and it's time to time to act
1: it it, it, it it pretty much, you know, nearly destroyed Florida yeah. and Florida's big tourism state and, you know, they got smart down there. People come to, you know, all the tourists come down and enjoy the waters down here. And so they finally, you know, smart enough, they put it to a vote and the public voted on it and they passed overwhelmingly. And, and that was that. And our fisheries have, have come back. Now, unfortunately, we got water issues in the state yeah. that we're fighting, which are pretty bad, too. So you go from one extreme like to another and, and the water issues are a whole other thing. It's just,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know,
0: terrible. Yeah. It's scary. It's scary all across the yeah. board.
2: And it, I mean, it's tough in NC because I feel like it's such a deep seated like heritage of North Carolina has yeah. always been this big producer of seafood. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. Like they just, it, it's a,
0: it's a tough subject. Yeah. It's a tough subject. And, and I think one of the issues that we have is sorry I keep switching cameras here that in Florida I forget the terminology for this and I'm, I'm not very studied up in my law on this but Florida they y'all were able to vote on, on they did that, a game fish bill a right? game fish bill and and the the citizens could vote like the it,
1: yeah it was a constitutional amendment that the, they put out to vote on the on banning the nets
0: and so in North Carolina we can't vote it's it's up to the mm-hmm. marine commit marine fisheries commission i believe and so right. i mean i know if it got put up to a vote that oh, yeah. a vote, it would pass immediately i mean there's no no doubt that it would pass but um it it's we're just for some reason our state is different and we're, we're we can't do that but.
2: Yeah. well my my question is always to and, and i don't think i've ever gotten like a really good answer on this is that all, all the other coastal states have commercial fishing as well, yeah. Um, but somehow they're doing it more
1: sustainably. Yeah, um. yeah. We're, I mean, certainly, you know, not 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 against you know hook and line commercial anglers. They're they're, they're not the, the issue at all. It's the large scale, you know, right. practices that are hurting us. But for hook and line commercial anglers, uh, you know, rage I mean, commercial anglers, you know, they're not 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 hurting it. Yeah, hurting
0: it. yeah, definitely. Um, at a meeting. Um, one of the guys that spoke at one of the Marine Marine Fisheries Commission meetings, he said, "Why don't you just give everybody a mirror lure for these trout? You know, the commercial guys and the the wreck guys, and and you know they can keep their they can keep their seventy five like do it with a mirror lure." Like, that's, a, that's a pretty funny, uh, pretty funny idea. But um, well, cool. So we've talked about inshore fishing. We've talked about the trout and the snook. Um, do do you mostly focus in where you're inshore fishing down there in that Biscayne Bay area, um, or do you do you branch out from there much?
1: I branch out. I mean, um, you know, again, that's where I grew up fishing. We yeah. shot a number of shows out of there, but when we do our inshore shows, you know, we, we, we will travel and choose travel different uh, bodies of water on a subject of trout. Uh, one of the, uh, neatest inshore episodes that we had done is probably going back. i it losing track of time, you know, seven, eight years we were fishing in, um, Alabama and, um, fishing some of these local estuaries and, uh, did really really well. We fished these top water plugs, and uh, ended up catching a seven pound trout, a six and a half pound trout, six pound trout, a couple five pound uh, wow. trout, which was really remarkable. It was just, you know, so dead on. And um, yeah, shoot, we fished Texas before for uh, the trout reds there. I fished uh, the northern end, you know, of your state for the big bull reds, Oriental area. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We got back from uh, Venice, Louisiana uh, this past summer, and a show aired last week. We did a show on um, catching the big bull reds around the Venice, Louisiana area. Mm-hmm. So we do get a, a good amount of the inshore you know, shows in as yeah. well. Awesome.
2: So, out of all the places that you've traveled um, with, with, your, with your show, do you have a, a favorite?
1: Oh, and there, there's another question that comes out a lot. Uh, Between (laughs) all the places I fish, between Saltwater Sportsman magazine,
2: you can't see a TV
1: show. Where could you? And I tell people the same. I said my favorite area to fish, believe it or not, is my the hometown waters at a Hollow Inlet in Miami, because again, when I tow down there, I live in Broward County now, probably about forty-five minutes north of Miami. But I still trailer down there a lot because you know some of the areas, and Mm -hmm. it's just familiar waters, and you enjoy fishing there. And I think, too, when you really put together some sensational catches out of Miami, you're really saying something. You're really doing something. Uh, I like that area. I like the uh, the Keys quite a bit. And if I had to pick my favorite spot in the Keys, which is even more difficult, it would be <laughs> between either Key L'Oreal to Isle of or, for sure, Key West. And I'll say Key West because, again, the Marqueses mm-hmm. are west of Key West. And so – um, then again, there, there's the Bahamas, there's Bimini too. And I, we've had, you know, incredible, you know, fish catches over there too. So, but if I had only do one, I'd have to go to the old hometown favorite all over Inlet in uh, North Miami.
0: That's there awesome. I think that's just, it's, it says a lot, you know, when, and I think everyone's favorite fishery should be their home fishery. They should, the pride sure. and the respect for, for that water. Um, it might not be the the most productive water, but I mean, it's just cool to really love that, that, that home water. It's easy to, um, you know, always think the grass is greener, go fish somewhere else, go Mm -hmm. fish in their state, you know, another part of your state. But, but, um, you know, there's a lot to, anywhere up and down the East coast, there's a lot of fishing to be done where you are, you know, don't, don't get too wrapped up in wanting to be in Florida or wanting to be in Georgia. Um, just pick apart where you are and, and, and go from there, but
1: it is, you know, learn those waters and the catches that you can come up with or, you know, it's, it, it just it's special, you know, when you do yeah. it in your own backyard. Yeah. Most certainly. So most of your, are
2: most of your shows filmed, um, within the United States or do you go out of the country?
1: Um, most of them are in the United States. And, and that was a show concept. My show now is in its 20th year on TV. And, um, the show concept was because when I was with saltwater sportsmen, I could, uh, fish just about anywhere. <clears throat> excuse that's not coronavirus. That would be <laughs> you got my computer <laughs> all germed up. <laughs> <laughs> Is I, I didn't want to do the, the out of the country stuff, which I did a lot of with Saltwater Sportsman Magazine, because when I was doing a TV show, my thought was, if you do a show, say, out of Venezuela or Costa Rica, in somebody's mind, that might be a trip of a lifetime to them that they mm-hmm. may never even take. They'll watch it, and they'll really like it, but it's not something that they might not be—you know—they might yeah. not be able to make yeah, it happen. Makes so I wanted to focus on the recreational saltwater market in Florida, mm-hmm. what I consider ninety percent of our backbone—the recreational anglers and these seventeen footers to say thirty-three footers that do it from inshore, the nearshore, offshore, but majority along the continental U.S. Because then anybody can watch that show. And say if we run one on dolphin fishing, for example, out of Miami. Somebody in North Carolina who offshore fishes, he never goes to Miami, but he'll watch that show. He said, you know, hey, you're fishing for dolphin in Miami. I do it up here in North Carolina. Let me see what they're doing differently that might help me out. Mm -hmm. They can relate to that because you're doing it coastal. Every now and then we'll throw a show in a foreign land. And, you know, we do Bahamas stuff, but I don't consider Bahamas foreign. That's an extension of South Florida, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but we've done a Marlin, Marlin show out of Brazil before. Oh, cool. we, we've done the Giant Tuna out of Prince Edward Island, Canada before. But the majority is continental U.S. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I, sl- I set the show and went for that target audience
2: yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense actually it's more relatable yeah right, for it is
1: people within the
2: United States to see how you're catching more fish and um use your tactics and and philosophy to to do so
0: yeah I see that happen with this podcast too is is the ones that are really listened to and viewed a lot um are the ones that that are more relatable to more people you know <laughs> here along the east coast inshore fishing being probably yep. for us. A little more productive because you know there's a lot more access. You can catch fish from the bank. You can use a kayak, paddleboard, um, but yeah, I think that's cool. And and uh, your show is incredible. If you haven't checked the show out, you were telling us I think it was pre-show. If people want to see your show, when does it air, and what does it call? We are
1: on the uh, Discovery Channel on Sunday mornings at seven thirty. Now uh, after we air on Discovery Channel, uh, that's our main network. We post on YouTube on Monday. So if anyone wants to watch any of our shows to date they could go to the YouTube and go to George Povaromo TV and our shows are posted there in um, you know 4k broadcast quality and the networks don't run shows in 4k unless it's a major sporting event but YouTube runs 4k so yeah. that 4k is just a, a broadcast quality that we shoot in mm-hmm. that you could see people perspiring in 4k yeah it, it's amazing the clarity so if you have a smart TV and you go to YouTube and go to George Pogromo TV. Every episode that we do is in 4k broadcast quality. And you could really see just, a, it's amazing uh, with, with the difference between what you see on a national television like discovery, which is a first rate network versus the quality difference on YouTube. And you think it'd be the other way around, but, uh, right, right. but discovery channel, 7:30 Sunday mornings, George Pogromo's world of saltwater fishing, or you could punch it up on the uh, YouTube and, uh, if they have trouble falling
0: asleep tonight, put on an episode. We'll take care of that right away. <laughs> I wish I could fall asleep to uh, to fishing fishing YouTube videos every night, but I don't think my wife would love that too much. We had a question well, pop no, up no, here, but look at the bright
1: side: if we're all going to be locked up for yeah, as weeks,
0: well. oh man, go
1: watch my shows on YouTube. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Oh, I
0: watch a lot of YouTube. It's just not when I'm falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but um, and I've watched a lot of your shows. I, I love them. And, and and you're so one of the things I love about your show. And I'm just going to gonna say this real quick is is you're very relatable and you're very personable and and i think that comes across on your shows and um that you're just a fun person to watch fish like i feel like i'm on the boat with you catching fish It gets me amped up i'm like <laughs> i'm gonna go try that here but but definitely check the show out it's incredible
2: that's why judd went offshore fishing today. yeah i was like i'm not gonna have something to talk
0: to george about i do not want to talk about my dinky little redfish I've been catching. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we had a question pop up on here, and I meant to ask it earlier. Sandy said, what is the story behind your boat names?
1: There's another question I get asked quite a bit. <laughs> you know, as I mentioned, my dad was a big fishing fanatic, and uh, we nicknamed him the fishing dentist, and um, then I, you know, got the bug worse than he did, and then growing up, my sister liked to go out in the boat, too, but the one in the family that couldn't stand fishing was my brother Mark. And to this very day he hates it. And um whatever reason he doesn't li- didn't like it, never does. And over the years, like his friends would say, hey man, your brother catches a lot of fish. You think you took your brother to take me out fishing? So every once in a while my brother would ask me, Would you take, you know, me and so and so out fishing for a day? And I said, okay. And then he then he tells me, none of it is five o'clock in the morning, BS. You know his his fishing day <laughs> begins to crack at noon, the
0: and if uh, noon. nothing
1: happens in an hour, he wants to go in. So, I you know that the, one of the funnier stories I had taken him out and his buddy, and it was out of Miami. It was an August hot August day, and we're trolling. And he said, "Man, nothing's going on here. Let's go in and say, We just got out of here for an hour. Let's work. We'll, we'll catch something." Long story short, we caught thirty five dolphin. And a sailfish. My brother's friend got his first sailfish ever, so he's on cloud nine. We come back to the boat ramp, and they're putting the boat you know, on the trailer, and I was just walking up, I think, to throw something in the trash can. And I hear another boater walk over and ask my brother, hey, how'd you guys do? And I hear my brother, oh, we did okay. Cause really, did you catch anything? Yeah. Well, what'd you get? A uh, 35 dolphin and a sailfish. And the guy's looking at my brother. Like, my brother thinks that that's just what you do every single time you go out. <laughs> so when it was... My- Come time to name the boats. My dad always named the boats after his kids. It was the Mark George. Then my sister came along as the Mark George Melanie. And then as it progressed, and we jumped in that 23 foot Mako in 1977. We decided, what are we going to name it? And I said, Well, the only one in the family that hates fishing with a passion is is my brother Mark. So just stick his name on there to piss him off if I could say that. And we did. <laughs> no, <you're just> <laughs> And and that was the fifth boat my dad owned, so it was the Mark 5. Wow. And then in 1979, we bought the, the first 25-foot Mako, so that became the Mark 6. And at that point, that's the one we did a lot of tournament fishing in. We had tremendous catches that when we sold that boat down the road and got the new Mako, I was done playing the Roman numeral games and said, you know what? That was a lucky number, and I'm sticking with it. And I never changed that number from that date forward, so that's awesome. it, that's so it's cool named after my brother who, who can't
0: stand the fish. That's a, that's a <laughs> that's a great reason to name name the boat. Um, we had another question come in here, and we're, we're we're already at an hour pretty much, and so we're going to kind of wrap up here soon. Um, but this sounds like, and I didn't, I've never heard this, but this sounds like a story that needs to be told. So, um, sabbatical charter said, um, ask him about getting pulled in the water by a fish. <laughs> I think it was a marlin. Uh, No, it's a swordfish. It was a swordfish. It's
1: funny. You know, I predicted all the questions you guys were going to ask me tonight.
0: (laughs) I didn't even (laughs) get uh, to any of the questions that I I had written down to ask. Cameron's had great questions. We've had (laughs) some good ones on my feed.
1: Sure. This was a TV episode that we did. And in fact, it, um, that you could go to YouTube and again, go to George Pogromo TV. You could scroll down and it's called The Incident. We took that little segment out of the show and we posted it. And, what had happened was we we're day sword fishing at isla morata and it was one of those days with it was just on fire the first drop at 1600 feet we hook up i get in the harness because i don't want to do it with electric reels and i fight this swordfish for a little over an hour we get him probably 50 80 feet from the boat beautiful fish couple hundred pounds at least and the hook pulls and oh my god what a bad break so we go back to the spot drop down we hook another fish immediately I fight that for over an hour. Get that the same distance out, another fish about the same size, and we pull the hook. Now we're doing a show, and I'm totally dejected. And so we go back out, and sure enough, the third drop, I hook up again. Oh my god! So now I'm fighting this fish for two and a half hours. And now remember, I was on the rod about two hours beforehand between those two fish. Now I'm on for every bit of two hours now with, with this fish. So we're getting them Close, or he's probably about maybe 50, 80 yards off. And my buddy was running the camera boat. And he starts to sneak around by my outboards and I'm in that corner fighting it, and the fish is angling line out. And I go, Carl, what are you doing? I said, stop, the fish is out there, you're gonna break the line, we've had bad luck. I said, go around my bow. The sun's at your back, it's a wide open area here, and you can sneak in with the boat and film us from the front side. And he goes, OK. So he starts to back out. And I'm fighting this fish. And we're getting it closer. Still can't see it. And I'm going to stand upon us. And Carl's easing around. And then the last thing that I see is at a corner of my eye, I catch his boat coming around my bow. And as I go down to take a crank uh, on the uh-huh. rod, his wake lapped the side of my boat and gave it like a jolt. And at that weird time that I was going down the crank the fish and that weight that lapped the side of my boat pulled my feet in the air. And at <laughs> that time, the swordfish pulled me into the water. And I always knew, I always did the big game stuff. And I knew sooner or later, you, when you're strapped up, you might find yourself in a bad position. So in my mind, I had all rehearsed, how do you get out of an emergency situation? Because <clears throat> when you hit that water, when you hit that water... It's the freakiest thing, and you're getting pulled down by a swordfish. And you're gonna drown. And I always knew that if you hit the water, the first thing you do is not panic, and you slowly back the drag off. Most people would have freaked and not touched anything. It would have been pulled down and drowned. Or they would have freaked and gone a complete free spool, birds nested the reel, and it locked it up, and the fish would have pulled you down. So I'm going down and slowly back the drag off, alleviating the pressure. I came back to the surface. And I said, "Okay, now George, go to part two of your deal. Part two was to grab the rod, pull it to your chest, unclip, and swim out of it." So I'm trying to find the rod, but I can't find it. So I grab the side of the boat, and Nick Stanzik's up there trying to hold on to me, and he's 85 pounds soaking wet. I'm slapping his hand off of me because if I were, if I was going to go down, he was going to go with me, and I don't want to drown him on top of it. So I'm slapping his hand off, and I'm thinking to myself, "All right, George, you got one shot to get out of here." And I said, go, take a breath, let go of the boat, and try to find where that rod is. Fortunately, I didn't have to make the decision. One of the camera guys jumped off the boat, saw what happened, swam over to me. And during the tumble, the rod had twisted around, but it went between my legs. So when I was reaching out there, I couldn't see it. So the camera guy got his hand in behind the reel and unclipped me, and I got out of it. So I passed the rod back up to Nick, and he put it in rod holes to Nick. There's a fish still there, so he advanced the drag and it was still on. So I swim in the back of the boat now, and I go to jump in, and then I get stuck on the transom. My rod belt is wedged in the transom, and now I'm angry, so what else is gonna go wrong here today? So I finally straighten that out, got in the boat, got back in the harness, and fought the fish for another half hour, and finally <laughs> oh got God. it. And it was seven o'clock at night. We were 40 miles away from Isla Marotta. so we drive it in, in the dark, and we, we got in, we put the fish on the scales, a 256-pound swordfish. And the whole time, and probably through a good year later, if people say, you got so lucky you could have died. I I didn't see it that way. I was angry at myself for letting that happen. I was just mad. Until now, I realized that, like my camera guy said, he said, George, all that could have happened if that rod went over, and the braid line wrapped around the rod tip or wrapped around your shoe, you'd have drowned. He would have pulled you down. And now you look back at it. You're you're pretty darn close. Yeah, and this funny aspect of it: one of the camera guys videoed this whole thing, which you'll see <laughs> on the YouTube. And one of them jumped in to get me. And my wife said, "That Kevin, he's a wonderful guy. look he's the only one in that crew that jumped in to save you." And I told Kevin, I said, "Hey, you scored brownie points, with my wife." And I told him what she said, and he, and he says. Well, don't get too emotional. I said, the only reason I jumped in to save you because I didn't know whether or not you had checks on an authority in your company, Now I want to get paid after that shoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so that's great. the story of the swordfish. And it was a freaky deal. And, 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 and the third part of the deal, which, which failed me, was to try to get to your pliers and cut the line. But I had the stand up harness around me, and I couldn't get to my pliers because it was on my belt in there. Mm-hmm. So that would have failed right. me. Fortunately, back in the drag off lightly and you know, worked his thing. And before that, I don't get long with it here, is I have the, the restraints that go to the reel, down to the boat, in case something like that happens, you won't lose your rod or the person. And we talked about using it for the show, and I said no. I said, that that looks like too sissy-ish, we're not gonna put that on, don't worry about it, we're pros. And um, <laughs> I always said, I said in that clip, I said, you always think that accidents happen to the other guy, until that day I was the other guy. Right. Right, that was that was a weird deal, but that's how it happened in, in the old swordfish incident.
0: Wow, that's <laughs> incredible! Yeah, at first it's just like, oh, you get pulled in by a fish. You don't when you start to really think about the danger of it oh, all. Man, it's, it's scary, and that's huge. I would have done number two. I think you said and just slammed that reel into free spool and back, back and backlashed it. it. it you would have saved
1: deal. You would have you yeah. would have gone down, and it's the freakiest feeling. No matter how long you've been doing it, when I hit that water and I open my eyes and you see blue and you're going. And the first thing that came to my mind was, so this is how I'm gonna die, because I remember the stories off your coast where the mate would get wired up with a blue, get stuck and get pulled over and drowned. Right. And then I said, no, I'm not. Go back and think of your three steps to get out of it. And that's what I did. And, and the other thing I was negligence on back then, which I don't do now, is having those cutters strapped or tied up to your shirt a couple places that you yeah. can reach in and just cut. And uh, so if you saw the episode that aired this Sunday, which is on YouTube now, we went tidal Rod again in hand crank barrel fish, and we deep dropped for swords. So if you see me fight the sword from this Sunday, you'll see the, the 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 cord coming from the wheel of the boat.
0: You'll see the yellow cutoff thing. So I learned my lesson on that one too. Yeah, yeah safety is key. Deal. I mean, it's it even goes back to when you're a kid and you don't want to wear your helmet on the bike. And as soon as exactly. you get out of the cul de sac, you take your helmet off and set it on the side of the road. Uh-huh. Yes. I mean, I was that kid and it's, it's being safe is cool. And so in <laughs> and, and every way that you can be safe, I think you should out there on the water. Um, well, that's cool. We have so many people on the chat that, that were just, you know, so stoked to hear from you. And, um, Tommy Mungo says, thanks for all, or for all the years on TV. I think you've just made a big impact on a lot of anglers lives. And we just want to thank you for that. And, and just keeping that fire alive for people to want to go out there and fish and to, to, uh, you know, create memories like you have, um, for so many of us. So, We want to say thank you for that, and uh, give you the opportunity. If there's anything else uh, that you want to share, if there's any closing thoughts, if not, completely fine. Um, But no, it's just I
1: appreciate everybody out there watching the show, and it's fun, and you know it's a passion, and I love doing it, and love talking to people, and it's amazing that our time had gone so. Fast. Remember, we're, we're supposed to be in lockdown for three weeks, so we got another at least two and a half weeks to talk. Right now, we that's can true. Going. <laughs> We're but, gonna um, we're gonna go
0: live every night at eight for the next three but, weeks. Let's do it. What else do we have to do? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Nothing.
1: Uh, but you know, if I could lead the people, North Carolina is on uh, one thing is you know we have such precious resources, and just think if you have any kind of time on the water, and and where you know the enjoyment level that you had, and what that means to you is just think in terms of like future generations that you would like them, if they had an interest in fishing, to experience the waters as we are doing now and as we have been growing up. It's such a precious resource. It's such an immense hobby that keeps you busy the rest of your life. And you know, fight for it, treat it with respect, and just try to keep all the fisheries managed to where they can remain at sustainable levels for future generations to enjoy. We go out and we fish to bring fresh fish on the eat and and that's part of it and that's what we love to do but i don't really stockpile fish in the freezer um we'll go out and we'll take fish which is our right to do but in a lot of cases we do a lot of catch and race and practice it and you know like i said going back to the, the fights you have in north carolina keep up the good fight one days, you will tilt the odds and, and and those nets will be out and give yourself four or five years and you're going to swear you move to a foreign country because the amount of fishing and fish that you'll have in that System mm-hmm. years will be yeah. amazing. Yeah,
2: yeah, I think my, I think our goal, Judds and I, would definitely be to just have that that our fishery is better for our kids or future generations than it is now.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I think that there's you know there's so many little steps we can steps that we can take, and um, I think the Eastern Current. Our really main goal is to build this community to have a voice for conservation here. Mm-hmm in North Carolina. Like it's not about a dollar bill. My guiding's not about I just love being on the water. I love sharing those experiences with people. Um, and I want it to, I want more people to be able to experience that here in North Carolina and every state up and down the coast. So, um, I I think that, that we all share that common, common goal, um, as anglers and as, you know, advocates for conservation. Uh, but George, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to close the show off and um, like we like he said go check out those those uh or go check out a show on youtube i'm gonna do that after this some of the 4k definitely gonna look up that swordfish footage i was like you had me on the edge of my seat as i was listening <laughs> to that story but um but thank you so much i'm gonna switch over to our camera here and uh and guys as always thanks for tuning in to eastern current we had such a fun time with george and uh, we should have done like a three hour Joe Rogan style podcast yeah. here. I'm sure George has enough
2: stories to, <laughs> yeah. to last these three weeks. Oh, it was of, great! Uh,
0: there was a great story for every question. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, but I'm gonna do just say one more time about the Facebook group since we, they got cut off there in the beginning um, for our listeners because this will be the actual podcast version here. Um, <laughs> but so check out the Facebook group Eastern Current Fishing. That will uh, will give you like inside access to this community of of listeners and viewers of this podcast to be able to talk and, you know, hopefully um, share information and become fishing buddies and all that good stuff. The other thing was the Patreon um, that I've set up. It's just going to hopefully help us kind of pay for some of the back end stuff for this podcast as it's gotten, you know, a little pricier. It's a, it's a little bit per month and um, I'm going to drop the link one more time here in the comments, but if you want to go check it out, there's two tiers of, of helping if you really love this podcast and want to help us grow it. Um, there's a $5 a month and a $10 a month, which is like a cup of coffee or a burger. And I hate plugging and trying to, you know, to do this, but, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it would be awesome to, you know, have the back end of the show paid for and and whatnot. So go check out the Patreon account. Um, if you do love the show and, um, we will see y'all on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in later. Uh Uh-oh, I can't find the end button. This is embarrassing. There we go.